Alright, run it. I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Use the word I. Something settles. Welcome back to another episode. Today's guest is Gaj Ravikandra, who is a highly sought after performance coach, and he's been in the industry for over 20 years. He has worked with very large organizations and individuals, including billionaires and high net worth families to unlock their performance and maximize their growth. Uh, he leans on this psychology training as a means of injecting uh, more of the conscientious EQ savvy techniques than what is traditionally done in the high performance space, which can be very clinical and head-based. I like that he brings in a lot of heart. And if you're someone who's interested in how you go from well to really well, or if you have big career dreams and goals and you're looking to dial in every aspect of your performance and really hack growth, which is a side passion of mine outside of helping unwell people get well, I think this is the type of episode you want to listen to because I ask him questions around what are the main characteristics, mindsets and behaviours you see as a common denominator uh, in the most quote-unquote successful people in the world. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. It was an amazing chat. Uh, he came over from Dubai and we recorded this in my living room at my apartment, which was really fun and a great uh, personal experience to get to know Gaj. So without further ado, here we go. Gaj, thank you so much for joining and I like to start these chats with one question uh, as a way to kind of dive into discussion. And that is, what is a opinion about mental health you have that could be controversial that you wholeheartedly believe? Mm. There's probably a few. Um, I think one that really struck me was this idea of this disassociation, this difference between the mind and the brain. And so the idea that when we understand that these two things are completely different, uh, mm. the brain is purely a survival mechanism, right? It's just there to help us to exist. Whereas our mind actually is this thing that allows us to thrive. And so as we shift from surviving to thriving, mm. it requires a completely different way of looking at life. And I think a lot of our mental health issues and particularly the situations I get exposed to and, and you know, the conversations I have, even in my own life, is when I've shifted from my mind to my brain. And so that, almost that reminder for me makes a massive difference, right? I've, okay, I've slid into survival mode here, right? What do I need to do now to pick myself back into thriving? And that requires a different set of constructs. So the direction you want to go is from brain to mind. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And would you look at the brain as like the car and the mind as the driver? 
Yeah, I'd look at it as, as the engine and, and the driver, right? So the yeah. car, the brain is almost a shell, right? And so, you know, the brain in lots of ways is um, everyone gets the same shell, right, that we kind of get to look at. And, you know, we've got this, the horsepower can change because we now, now, now that neuroplasticity is something that we're all talking about, right? Mm. We used to think we've all got the same engine, right? Well, actually, we can change our engine. We can upgrade it uh, with different software. And I mean, you were at Microsoft, right? The amount of updates that we get. And the reason for that is we want to keep improving, want to keep growing. We want to get rid of the bugs, right? And so as a result of that, um, we can really then start to focus on, you know, how do we shift that thinking to the upgrade piece? And if we're doing that, I think that's actually where happiness comes from. I'm sure we're going to go down that path today. But there's this whole thing about you know, what actually makes us happy, right? And it's definitely not being in that survival mode. Let's pull on that thread. We're there now. And, <laughs> and I like starting with big hitting questions. What is happiness to you as someone who has all the credentials and you know the clinical side of this and uh, you also are a human with a brain and a mind? What is happiness to you? I think for me, happiness is between two periods of sadness, right? And I think it is cyclical. And, and it's a bit like saying that everyone can have it all at once. You know, I've got two daughters, right? 17 and 14. And a lot of the, the dialogue that seems to be coming up is that women can have it all, right? Well, men didn't have it all, right? So the, the assumption that we can be happy all the time or we can have it all all the time, I think is a bit of a fallacy, right? And so then, you know, if we assume that it's between two periods of sadness, then what is happiness, right? And I think for me, there is this distinction between feeling happy, which I think is transitory, right? And then there is what the sages might call bliss, right? Which might be a little bit longer, right? But then there's this thing called fulfillment, right? And I think a lot of the people that I work with, whether they're, you know, high performance individuals or leaders, they have goals, they have tasks and objectives, right? That they need to hit. That in itself doesn't make you happy, right? Because I think the secret to the word um, sits in the word in fulfillment. It's filling something, right? Mm. So once you fill something, I mean, you and I know this, right? When we achieve a goal, are you done? That's it? Or have you kind of already mentally moved on to something else, right? That you're looking to fill. And I think it's the human condition, particularly of high performers, that we would look at things that we're trying to fill. And once we fill it, then actually we might have momentary happiness, right? Mm. Uh, so, yeah, happiness. And then we kind of move forward, right? Onto the next sort of thing. I've often thought to me, happiness is the absence of suffering more than the presence of joy mm. or insert any emotion. And that's been true in my life that the moments I remember that have shaped who I am and that I kind of cling to to want to run toward is when some type of pain has been lifted, usually emotional. Mm. And it's, even with high performers, I noticed that it's the relief of not failing more than it is the attainment of the getting mm. that is usually the thing that keeps them coming back. What, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't think it's an accident that a lot of high performers have really challenging backgrounds, right? 
And this idea of this fear of failure, which can be this massive driver, right? I remember in my own life, you know, my first graduate job, I was uh, given this task of not only being a young consultant psychologist, but also to be in the sales team, right? Now, I study psychology. I know nothing about commerciality or sales, right? And the reason I was put into that job was because on my personality profile, the assessor at the time gave me feedback saying, your fear of failure is off the charts, right? And we know that really strong salespeople have really strong fear of failure. And that's what pushes them, right? Now, they also gave me this little piece of advice, which is this nugget that I have held on to for 20 plus years. And it is, it is much more fun to focus on running towards success than running away from failure. You get to pick which direction you want to go in, right? Now, I didn't quite understand it at the time. I think I was like 22, 23 years old, right? But I think just as I was starting to build Compass, you know, 10 years ago with a few co-founders, it really hit me that all my life I've been running away from not wanting to go back to where I was before, coming from a young immigrant family, and we were very fortunate. We were given a lot of things. But at the same time, I knew there were certain aspects that I didn't want to repeat. Can you tell me about a, I'm about to psych the shit out of you. Can you tell me about a time from your childhood, your earliest memory of the impact of failure? Mm. Um, there is one that I was thinking about yesterday and it came up on this concept of people pleasing and it was linked to failure. I remember uh, my year seven report card and, you know, coming from a young immigrant family, one of the things that we are really forced to focus on, I come from a Sri Lankan background, are your grades, right? You're expected to get straight A's and that's it, right? And so then when you get a B on your report card, that is actually a sign of failure, right? And I remember my mum not talking to me for three days right? As a result of that, she was just disappointed in me, right? But what happened was she withdrew affection. And so that failure, what it imprinted in my mind is one of those life anchor points, right? The anchor for me was if I displease somebody that is important to me, they may withdraw affection from me. And so therefore, what do I do? I go through the rest of my life wanting to please people, make them happy. My name, Gaj, is short for Gajanan. It is named after the god, the Ganesha, the elephant god in Hinduism. His job is the remover of obstacles, right? That's what I do for a living, right? And so the idea that I've chosen a profession, and I don't think, and we're talking off air about this, I don't think things are coincidences, right? Um, Chosen a profession that kind of aligns to helping people, removing obstacles, making them happy, right? Pleasing them. Um, I don't think it's an accident that that happened. So interesting and such a powerful story you told about your mum, who I'm sure you've been able to reconcile as an adult, was doing we have a wonderful the time yeah, and I have no doubt life. that yeah. you have adoration and love for her. It's our first love. Our love mama. you, mum. Gaj loves you, mama. <laughs> and, but, but you know what that also signals to me is mm. you, you summed it up well with the people pleasing, but it was also in a child's brain, if I don't achieve... I will not get my core need met, Mm. which is unconditional love. Mm. That is like code red for the brain, the survival hardware Mm. that's going, okay, for me to survive, what conditions need to be true? Well, apparently A's need to be true Mm. because the 
the pain, because mm. we're moved way more to avoid pain than to seek pleasure, the pain of having my first love fall out of love with me temporarily as evidenced by her behavior mm. of withdrawal um, is too great to the psyche. Mm. So let's orchestrate every waking move for the rest of my life as top priority to avoid that ever happening again. And yeah. it has produced greatness. And I love this topic because when people say, okay, you work in mental health, what part of that? And I break down my vision and purpose of changing a billion lives into three pillars. Mm. Connection, what I call throughput. So how do we cultivate the best relationships in our life? Because for me, the connection and, and relationship is the greatest protective factor against traumatic experiences in someone's mm. life. And I don't think we know how to connect. I think we know how to talk and connecting is very different. The second is resilience or what I would call emotional fortitude. So when shit happens, how do you get back to neutral? Mm. How do you not want to die? Because mm. I have wanted to die mm. and I'm very passionate about helping people want to live. Then the third is high performance. Mm. How do well people stay well and thrive? And we're going to dive deep into the third one today because this is your area. Um, although I can already tell as an incredibly intelligent person, you could talk to all three. But why high performance is so interesting to me is because it usually borrows from pillars one and two. As in, I haven't seen a super high performer yet that's not fucked up in some way. <laughs> Seriously, like yeah, yeah. I don't think yeah. Apple would exist if Steve Jobs wasn't adopted. And mm. I, I have this memory stuck in my head of sitting on Manly Beach probably like 10 years ago talking to my mate who, who's like the most chill dude in the world. Mm. And I'm like, you know, he, he's very into the, he was surfing a lot and he would wake up and go to work and come home and he just looked so peaceful and I was so fucking jealous. <laughs> and I'm like, don't you want more? And he's like, no, this is awesome. Yeah. And I was like, how amazing would it be to just live in a perpetual state of peace because it's those who want to go and quote-unquote create great things that mm. are often running away from something versus mm. towards something. Now, you work with high performance for a living. Mm. Is that true? Mm. Um, I think the majority of it, yes. I think absolutely. They have to – and I, it's funny because I'm, I'm working on a book at the moment and I was trying to work out what to call it, right? And I don't care if anyone takes this idea because it's knowledge is ubiquitous, right? It doesn't really matter, right? Um, I started it as a journal, but the book is called Broken. And the reason it's called Broken is because all of us are beautifully broken. And in the break lies the opportunity for greatness, right? The problem is that sometimes we don't acknowledge it, right? And we leave it alone. And so I had to get in touch with my broken parts, right, into my break. Now, that takes courage. It, it, it's It's painful, right? But once you get in there, you can start to uncover some things, like, like the people-pleasing, right, that I was talking about. And I realized that it was not really about me. It was about my mum. That was her way of dealing with that situation, right? It had very little to do with me. And so when you start to learn some of these things, you explore the break, um, you can get into greatness. Now, when it comes to high performers, you know, going to your question – most of them are broken in some way that they actually dig into, right? So, for example, um, I've got a, a number of them, I would say, come from very poor to lower middle class backgrounds, right? And they are driven to make sure they never, ever get to experience it and their families never get to experience that, right? So that is a fundamental driver for them. And through that, they're willing to take risks. 
They're willing to do things differently, right? Because they know if they just do things the way they're meant to do it through the process, they are not going to bypass the queue, the lineup of people, right? That are standing there in front of people, right? So you have to do some things differently. You got to, you got to take some risks. That requires you to have accepted that there are some things that perhaps weren't quite right. Well, in the, and look, I would do a disservice to those areas one and two that you mentioned, right? Because I'm not an expert or a, someone who's studied a lot in those fields up to a certain point, right? Um, and you've had some wonderful guests who have talked about those things. I think it's that third piece, the answer is yes. And I think you need to dig into the break. So this leads me to a question that I can't wait to hear the answer to. <laughs> what quality or characteristic as best as you could describe makes the difference between an individual who breaks and chooses to roll over and an individual that decides to fill that hole with gold and mm. become a high achiever? Mm. Um, well, from my observations, there are a few things that come to mind. The first is around this very, very strong sense of why or purpose, right? The ones who tend to push through, right, the obstacles, because everyone has obstacles in their life, right? Some people tend to stop earlier than others. If your incentive, right, your drive to be able to push through and your or your clarity on why you're doing this is not very clear, you are more than likely to pull back. You're not going to go through those hurdles, right? So I think that's the first thing. Second thing is about how you manage your energy. Right? We hear about burnout a lot, right? Why is it that super high elite individuals tend not to burn out as much as the average person, right? There's something going on here, right? I mean, you might hear every now and again of people like Simone, you know, Bowles, you know, the Olympic um, gymnast, the US Olympic gymnast who pulled out of the Olympic Games and then came back in, you know, mid-games. Um, but it's very rare, right? And part of the reason is, it kind of links to this theory that I talk about called the energy ATM, Right? That all of us have an energy ATM that we take energy from each day, right? And like a normal ATM with cash, you keep withdrawing, keep withdrawing. What happens at the end of the day? Bankrupt. Bankrupt, <laughs> right? So if you go bankrupt, what do you got to do? You got to deposit, right? So what are you depositing through the day that is allowing you to withdraw? Now, if you're not doing things that enrich your life, if you're not on a purpose, if you're not clear about where you're going, you are simply withdrawing. And if you keep withdrawing and you're not depositing, you are going to go bankrupt. And bankruptcy is the energy equivalent of burnout, right? And so thinking through that means you need to, I need to, we need to be clear about where we're going and why and managing our energy by filling our days with things that actually enrich us, right? That's what a Steve Jobs did. That's what a Bill Gates did. It's not an accident, right, that they got to where they were. 50% um, would be luck. If you talk to a lot of billionaires, we've got a few you know, billionaire clients, and they would acknowledge 50% is luck, right? There are a lot of people who work hard. There are a lot of people who are intelligent, right? Why don't they make it, right? So luck has to come your way. But after that, there's effort, but there's also some forms of intelligence that are required, and we can always talk about that too. Luck. I'm so glad you spoke about that. I want mm. to put a pin in that and come back to it because mm. I think as humans, we lust for control and we want a mathematical formula to explain a lot of things in life, mm. but there's a lot of unexplainable. For me, that is God, spirit, luck, whatever you want to put it on. But I think for a lot of us, it's like 
No, there has to be a formula to get there. Yeah. There's a shit ton of wind behind some people that others don't, including privilege, by the way. That's a that's a tailwind or headwind, depending on how you want to... A tailwind, it moves you forward, mm-hmm. that we don't recognize enough. Mm-hmm. But to come back to your point around this brokenness and why people would choose to fill it with gold versus shrink. I agree that it has a lot to do with the why. It has a lot to do with how we transmute pain into into purpose um, and how we regulate our energy. It's interesting you said the one of the greatest shifts you've ever made is going from running away from pain to actually running towards success. Uh, so which is the better option? Because you also said that the the why of a lot of people is not to be broke yeah. versus to become rich. So should mm. we run away from pain or should we run towards success? Um, I don't know. Some people might hate me saying this, but I, I think you should have access to both. I think they're so super powerful in their own way. So the idea that you might fail, I think is a wonderful motivator. Right? The idea that you could be successful and change the lives of people and impact the communities that you live in is super motivating and inspiring. Right? Why wouldn't we want to tap into both? Mm-hmm. Right? And so I think when we come from those places, it's about how do we control right, the impact that those two forces have on us. Mm-hmm. And I think when we start to learn how to do that and we really practice that, magic starts to happen right because you can shift right you can go from fear of failure to thriving to success right and you can do that during the day right you can shift depending on projects depending on clients you're talking to depending on podcasts you might have whatever it might be so i think that element of tapping into both um can be really powerful i want to get into some of the ingredients that make up for high performing people which Mm. i'm sure you've spoken about a million times um, but people listening will be like, tell me what these people have outside of the 50% variable of luck that <laughs> makes them get yeah. to where they are. But what I'm also really interested in kind of pulling on this same, thre- same thread as failure versus running towards success is what are some of the key strategies or characteristics you've seen that offsets the potential negative pitfalls of achieving success and then just getting to the top of the mountain and being lonely, depressed and miserable? Mm. Um, what do we need to do along the way in search of high performance to make sure that it's sustainable? Mm. Um, There are a few things that I think are really important. And firstly, it comes down to this idea of that happiness is perhaps a journey and that growth is probably one of the best ways to achieve it, right? And so therefore, regardless of where you get to, right, whatever goal that you've set for yourself and you want to achieve, if growth is your ultimate sort of process right that you're using well then you just keep going right it doesn't actually stop right so you may help 100 million people or a billion people or th- was it 3 billion 1 billion 1 billion yeah, fantastic yeah. <laughs> why not 3 billion right um so and it could be in certain demographics it could be in certain age groups it could be you know in, in different areas right so i think those kind of things um are about your growth and your approach. It could be the medium through which you reach people. You know, is it just virtual or do I want to do some large-scale workshops, right, with people as well face-to-face, right? So I think having that growth mindset allows you to keep going and not feeling like there is just this magical point, 
right? Because I promise you, Mitch, when you get to a billion people, you're not just going to stop. You're not going to just get in your sleeping bag and go, that's it, I'm done, right? It's not going to happen. So that element of there are other things that you are going to be leading up to. You know, I've got a a billionaire at the moment I'm talking to. He's sort of in his 50s. He's been very successful, built this retail, you know, conglomerate, has, you know, 15,000 employees. He wants to get to 100 billion, right? Not in terms of personal wealth, but in terms of his impact Mm. that he's having in the communities across multiple regions, right? Not just one region. And so that is something that, can be super inspiring because it's not just for him it's actually helping an entire team of people to grow and develop if i can play that back to summarize it and it could be too reductive but what i heard was you are set up for failure as a high performer if your kpi is an outcome Mm. you're set up for success as a high performer if your kpi is growth percentage Mm. Because growth seems like it's something that never has to end. And I think a high performer's worst nightmare is nothing to chase. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it sounds like, and I think this would be hardest probably for athletes because their body doesn't give them a chance to grow. Mm -hmm. You're going to reach an expiry period. And unless you have a why that transcends just your sport, um, you can't keep that metric fed. Mm-hmm. which is I need to be 1% better every day and that, that want for, uh, for progress. Yeah, I, I, that really resonates because I'm just thinking about my high-performer friends as well is that I, know, I, I watch them and I'm like, you're going to hit what you're looking for and it's not going to be what you think it is yeah. unless what you're looking for is growing because you can always find something to grow in, mm. but you'll always fail if there is a flag in the sand moment which is like i did it yeah. would you agree with that yeah and i think that's where that fulfillment piece comes from it's fulfillment is a it's it's a cheat mm. right it doesn't actually exist it's not it's not the reason you're going to be happy and so i think when you see, and it's good to have goals right you got to have a direction right where you're going um but don't expect that's going to make you content or happy this is why when people have, you know, I was in a conversation with a CEO recently, he's trying to retain this CFO in the bank. And one of the issues that he's got is that this person keeps coming to them every six months asking for a pay rise, right? Because they're having a phenomenal amount of impact. He keeps giving them a pay rise. But guess what? Every six months, this person keeps coming back asking for more money. It never stops, right? So until we understand what is actually the reason behind all this, is it a sense of recognition and appreciation? Is it a kind of role that maybe they want to be given some more strategic opportunities? Do they want to be given more responsibility that kind of gives them greater reach and impact and so forth? Um, There'll be other things, right, that a high performer is going to want to need. Mm. Sometimes we don't flag it. We don't ask questions about it. We don't introspect deep enough, right? Totally. Yeah, Mm. the the curiosity around the why and the need underneath all Mm. of the superficial outside world Mm. is is a big miss tell me about the the juicy question as someone who has exposure to individuals that are so high performing most of us in our lifetimes won't even come across a billionaire let alone sit across the table from one and them trust what you have to say and even taking finances outside of it, because that doesn't necessarily mean that you've performed. There are multiple fields that high performance mm. can can view themselves in. Outside of luck, what are three things that you're like, in my experience, high performers have this universally? Mm. Um, so mental toughness is one of them, 
Say and more. So middle toughness for me is um, there's a great framework. If anyone gets, you know, your your listeners get a chance to to have a look at this, it's uh, created by this company called AQR based in the UK. And they've been doing this study for 25 years. It's the most robust framework around mental toughness that exists. And it looks at these areas, the four C's, confidence, commitment, challenge, and control, right? So confidence, do I have confidence in my abilities, right? If I don't know the answer, do I have confidence I can go find the answer, right? Then there's also interpersonal confidence, right? Do I stand up for what I believe, so if I'm in a room and I've got investors sitting there and they're kind of hammering me down or a board or, you know, employees, am I willing to, to toe that line or am I willing to do something a little bit different, right, to speak up, right? Commitment. Am I willing to do what it takes, right? This, what we call stickability. Can I stick to the task until it gets done, regardless of what is required of me, right? Time, effort, whatever it might be. Um, and also uh, risk. Am I willing to take risk? And then there's challenge. Um can I turn a problem into an opportunity? The most successful people have come across problems like all of us, right? But they've managed to actually not just take away the problem, or remove the problem, they've flipped the problem, right? From an actual diabolical issue that's going to potentially make them bankrupt to actually become a winning competency or capability for them, right? That is massive, right, in the grand scheme of things. So having that mindset is really helpful. But one of the most important in that is control. It is what we call life control. Do I believe that I'm the bus driver of my destiny or am I a victim? It's a bit like that internal locus of control, external locus of control, right? So if we keep going back to that sort of life control piece, like if I wake up in the morning and I believe it's not the economy that's determining whether I'm successful, right? It's not whether this sponsor on my podcast is going to sign on the dotted line or not that I'm going to keep doing this, right? I believe in this and I'm going to push myself, right, to finding ways. I'm going to get creative, right, to be able to do this because the answer sits with me. So mental toughness, those four elements, super important. Um, I can go on to the others, but do you Please have do. any? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I do, but I want you to keep going because this is super interesting. The other is around um, different forms of intelligence. So I think that the people that really differentiate themselves have these four forms of intelligence that I find are really interesting. And I was interviewing a few of these guys, you know, sort of really successful individuals um, for this um, female entrepreneurs um, podcast that I was doing a couple of weeks ago. And, and the entrepreneurs are actually based in Lebanon and Jordan. So obviously there's a lot happening at the moment um, with the war. And, you know, they wanted something to kind of lift them, right? So I did some interviews to see well, what does it take to get from a certain point as a business owner, as a successful person in a corporate life, whatever it might be, to the next jump, right? What is involved? And as I was interviewing people, these intelligences kept coming up time and time again, and they weren't necessarily called this, but I kind of put some labels around it. Most of them you'll know, right? If not all of them, right? Um, so IQ, obviously, right? Can you solve problems? Can you find patterns in things, right? EQ, of course, emotional intelligence. Can I manage my emotions, the emotions of other people? SQ, social intelligence. Can I build a community around me, right? A tribe, a group of people who are willing to come with me on a journey, right? Not only during the good times, but also when I'm down. Can they support me, right? The fourth one is CQ, commercial intelligence, right? 
can I take a product or service? And can I then take that product or service and actually then take some risks and put some value to it and actually get people to buy it? Right now, I might be that product, right? It might be me, right? And that sort of, that sense of identity, that sense of value, right, that you create in yourself or the product or service is super important. And these individuals had all four, right? Now, if for whatever reason some of those things shifted or changed, they found people around them who would complement them in those four intelligences. It's not that everyone around them had to have all those four, but they needed to obviously complement, right? That was really important. But they all worked on those four intelligences. They never said they did it. They didn't have some sort of you know, structured process that necessarily did that for them. But when you connect the dots, that those four seem really important. Wow. Okay. So much there. <laughs> Sorry about that. I luck. should have compartmentalized. No, no, no. I'm, I'm tracking. I'm following. Um, luck, mental toughness, and flexible intelligence. Under mental toughness, you've got four pillars. Under uh, flexible intelligence, you've got the four pillars. I think you described it really well. I think people are hanging on to all that. Is there a is there a hidden trait that mm. is probably uh, more surprising to be like, I don't know, they're left-handed or something that is like, <laughs> yeah. holy shit, this is an outlier that I would never have expected? Yeah, they have a freckle on their left thigh. Yeah, I yeah. knew it. <laughs> <laughs> um, visualization for me comes up a lot, mm. right? So I tend to find, and this is, you see this a lot in sport, right? When you see somebody, you know, about to putt, right or a diver on a 10 meter platform dive um, it's very easy to see the visualization right but for you and i in a sort of corporate world or in a you know sort of um, a white collar type environment um, the ability to be able to visualize how an interview might go right to rehearse that in your mind to engage your mind through the thoughts the feelings and therefore what behavior i'm going to use is really powerful and i think the high performers engage in that visualization process almost on an hourly basis they're constantly thinking through before they are doing things and it's it's amazing how much of that time it takes now here's the interesting part the research actually tells us that visualization is happening in our visual cortex right in the our occipital lobe in the back of our brain right and we have this optic nerve that connects all the way through there is research now that shows us that our mental toughness is connected positively to the, how much we visualize. There is a direct positive correlation. So the more you visually l consider an event, something that's about to unfold, the more you are preparing yourself mentally for what could unfold. So if something goes wrong, you might have already played that out in your mind, right? So then you might have some strategies, some contingency plans, right, that you want to use. So there's a direct relationship between your visualization and your ability to visualize and your mental toughness. And I thought that was fascinating. That is fascinating. Because mm. essentially what you're doing is you're priming your biology to be ready. And I, I can then understand why you become more resilient as a result of that. Mm. And also, it's kind of like a mini exposure therapy in a way. So <laughs> you're depleting anxiety by going toward worst case outcome, worst case scenario. And you're probably inviting in best case scenario through feeling what it's like before it happens. Mm. Now, that brings me to an interesting topic, which is manifestation. Mm. 
Do you personally believe, based on your own lived experience and or watching people who are high performers, do you think manifestation is real? Absolutely. I have no doubt. I've, I've, I've personally experienced it every year. So I have absolutely no doubt about that. And I think there's a couple of reasons for it. If you were to talk to some physicists, they would talk about energy fields, right? Um, if you were to talk to spiritual people, they'll talk about other realms, right, that exist that allow you to be able to do this. I think it's not an accident that if you look across discipline, there are way too many people talking about this that results in these things happening. I have absolutely seen it happen personally in my own life. Certain projects, people experiences, things that I wanted to achieve that have just come about through me wishing and working towards it. And you have to work towards it, right? But then actually seeing it come to life, you know, this idea of having vision boards, for example. I right? got one upstairs I'll show you before you leave. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that kind of stuff, right, where you are priming yourself, right, to kind of ex ex expecting something to happen, but then also making sure that you ask yourself, what am I doing today? That is in alignment to what I am visualizing. And again, visualizing is not an accident that you are then willing to go further, go harder, commit to things more mm. to get the outcome. I remember, uh, so I'm a big believer in manifestation. Mm. Huge, huge, huge. And uh, I... Thank God. It's been really awkward. Yeah. <laughs> if I was like, no. <laughs> no, Eckhart Tolle, I think, is good for a bunch of reasons. But uh, something he said really stuck with me with manifestation. He said, there are three words that can summarize manifestation working and not working. Mm. And he said, it's these three words. It is done. <laughs> Which essentially means it's not something you're thinking about happening in the future. You have to feel as if it's done in the present. It's already happened. Uh, and so th there's actually two parts to that which where people can maybe take a learning out of mm. it's not thinking in the future it's feeling in the present because mm. visualization is one thing but i think the reason why visualization works over thinking is it makes it a body-based experience mm. because the universe doesn't understand language it understands frequency and the best way to generate a frequency is through an emotion and a thought but it needs to be both it needs to be a thought that triggers an emotional response mm. And it has to be in the here and now. Like, I've never shared this, uh, certainly not in a podcast, but it feels like the right time. Mm. I have a flag in the sand moment, but I'm also acutely aware that when I plant the flag in the sand of my high achievement has now happened, that that's it's going to last for about four and a half minutes and it's going to go, which is why my mission and my goal cannot be attained so that I can keep chasing it. Mm. But let's say, for example, my flag in the sand, which is I sell out Sydney Opera House as a speaker. I stand on stage. I transform every life in there, standing ovation. And I walk down the front row and there's my mum, and I give her a hug and I say, we did it. Thank you for never giving up on me. Mm. I sometimes, when I get off the train at Martin Place, which is in Sydney for our international listeners, I'll be walking through Martin Place and I will literally look around at the buildings as if they were full opera house seats. I can tell you who's there. I can tell you there's a woman in the 14th row with brown hair and awesome. scrunchie. Yeah. 
I know what the walkout song is. I know what I'm wearing. I know what it smells like. Mm. I know what I ate before I got on stage. It's fucking done. <laughs> it's done. I'm just it. waiting now. Yeah. I'm so convinced, and I think that comes back to some of the attributes of high performance you were talking about before, that confidence and belief. I'm also very cognizant that belief can turn to narcissism without humility and without knowing that none of this is actually you, it works through you, and Mm. I'm very aware of my many flaws. But in the areas that I feel like I've got some talent to offer with a healthy seed of why, Mm. it's done. And I more than believe. And so, yeah, for me, the key for manifestation is to feel and know the, and I think how you know you're manifested correctly is when it arrives, there is no surprise mm. as to what it will feel like because you felt yeah. it a million times before. Thank you for sharing that. That is awesome, right? And I hope I get to be there. In the You'll audience, it would be amazing. Done. <laughs> <laughs> and what's cool about that, right, is and as you were, you know, sort of talking there, man, I was just thinking through connecting the dots, right, and which is these thoughts, right, these beliefs that can be helpful for you, right, they actually pave the way for how you feel and then how you behave, right. This is our cognitive cycle, right, that, that typically takes place. If the behavior is such that you are right now behaving in a way that is um, required, uh, uh, expected of someone who would be performing at the opera house and delivering, right? People see it. Yeah, That's what they observe. And so therefore their perception of that is the behavior, mm. right? They don't get to see what's in your head, right? But they do get to see what you show. And so that part is really powerful. So by influencing, by working backwards, if I want to show people what I'm capable of, I've got to feel a certain kind of set of things, but to feel things, I've got to think them, right? And so, therefore, controlling the thoughts is the magic. Mm. That's that's the thing that really makes the difference, right? That is the magic. And I think there was also magic in what you said before around the depositing. Mm. A lot of people think that self-care is selfish, but you were talking about that energetic bank account and needing to invest in it. In your experience people who are most likely to burn out, do you think it's because they're doing too much output or they're not giving enough input to their energy stores? Uh, I think burnout's a good question. I think burnout for me is also where you spend your focus, right? So if you're focused just on outputs, you're going to get amazingly stressed out and anxious, right? If It's just outcome, outcome, outcome. These are my sales numbers that I've got to hit at the end of the year, right? And I've seen people, particularly in sort of commercial sales or in banking, for example, who are just focused so much on their targets and their their budgets they've got to hit, that they've forgotten this entire journey they've got to go through. And I think when they shift their focus, yes, your, your targets are there. You've got to have some sense of focus on those. But what are you going to do day to day that's going to result in you getting there, right? That part has got to be the enriching part. And if you do that, and if you find the things that enrich you, you're more likely to shine. If you're more likely to shine, you're more likely to get better outcomes, right? And I talk about this with people in their careers, right? If you want to get promoted, right? Act in the job of the person above you, right? What does that look like? Because the decisions that are made about your career are made when you are not in the room, right? What is in the room? is your brand, your presence, your energy, all of those things, right? And so that's your behavior. That's what people see. So that's what they're going to make decisions on about your career. Mm. So you've got to then show them those things and you've got to already be reducing the amount of 
perceived risk, right, of you getting that job? One of the most underrated skills, I think, of promotion cycles for anyone at work is learning how to the art and science of managing up. Mm. I've found a lot of people who excel quickly know how to manage their stakeholders, mm. know how to make their stakeholders above them look good, know their pain points, know how to take away their pain points because like skill is one part of a job, mm. but unfortunately the reality is whether I agree with it or not, career is also a game, particularly mm. in the corporate world. And playing the game involves knowing who are the core stakeholders in the way of or facilitators of my growth. Mm. How do I connect with them and manage up what are some limiting beliefs you see in the corporate world that prevent people from getting to where they are want to be i think one is about feeling this fake ceiling that exists Mm. right and i think there's a you know the structures around us uh deceive us right they make us think that we can only be at a certain grade or a certain level and that's kind of where things are at right but there's, there's promotion in multiple ways, right? There's vertical promotion, there's horizontal promotion, right? Are there other opportunities and experiences that we can be accumulating as part of our growth, right? Growth doesn't just have to be vertical. And so I think when we accept certain things, then that's really important, right? Mm. It's also this idea, Mitch, and I, I kind of think about this in my mind a lot these days, um, You know, we live in this VUCA world, right? Everyone talks about this volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. And that makes us feel banny. This is freaking business schools with their acronyms. Love a fucking acronym. (laughs) So it makes us feel brittle, right? So fragile, anxious, nonlinear, right? And I'll get to that. And incomprehensible. There are many things out of our control, right? In a career perspective, we live in a nonlinear world. And yet... In a corporate life, we apply a linear way of thinking. How does that work? Right? It doesn't work. Right? The ones who tend to have success don't think in a linear way. Mm. Right? And so I, I meet a lot of people who tell me, I'm so frustrated. I've done all the right things. I've achieved my KPIs and I'm still not getting promoted. And John over here seems to get promoted. He does half the work that I do. Well, do you know why that is? Because he's nonlinear. He doesn't look at the world in the nonlinear world that you live in, right? You need to take the red pill and realize that the matrix actually is a little bit more complicated than that. So for those who mm. aren't familiar with the term nonlinear, mm. how would you describe some nonlinear behaviors between the person who you just described? The f- he does half the work and is eating the red pill <laughs> versus the person who's overworking and scratching their head. Well, I think a lot of that comes down, there's this one beautiful piece of research done by um, Corn Ferry a couple of years ago that mm. talked about this idea of why people get promoted. And I think this long, non-linear piece is that 30% of your chance of getting promoted at sort of middle level roles and above is performance, but 70% are relationships, right? So a non-linear way of looking at the world is not looking at your performance, right? It's about looking at Who are the people you are impacting around you? And do they trust you, right? Because their reputations are on the line when it comes to you. So have you impacted them positively? Are they in your corner, right? So that would be one example, right? The other is about who am I spending time with that I'm actually positively impacting? 
And um, I have a mate of mine who was a, used to play football for uh, Tottenham and Bayern Munich, a guy called Alan Nielsen, he used to play for Denmark, he's a Danish football player. And he um, uh, used to have this rule called the one-third rule, right? And this is for sort of high performers. He'd say, if you want to look at the world in a non-linear way, right, most people would look at spending most of their time with people at their level, right? Maybe a little bit with people above them, right? But he said what, one of the things he did was he broke it up into three pieces. He said, spend one-third of your time with your peers, one-third of your time with people who are of a lower level or standard or capability to you. So you're teaching them, you're mentoring them, you're reinforcing the lessons that you need to learn and, and to have. But one-third of your time has got to be spent with people better than you, right? People you look up to, people you can learn from, right? These mentors and guides and, and leaders. And when you start to do that, that becomes a game-changer, because you are immediately getting uplifted through that process, right? The the uh, topic of mentorship seems to also be a threat in high performance. Mm. A lot of people have this guide that helps them navigate and sherpa up the hill. In your experience, can you tell me about a time where someone you've been coaching, consulting or working with was aided by the use of a mentor? I can talk about my own experience, yeah, please. If, if that might help. Please. Yeah. Um, in 2008, when we moved to the Middle East, um, moved to a company that had a very toxic um, culture. And one of the guys that came and actually helped was a guy called Ian Campbell. And he was the, became the CEO of that business. He was an ex-Olympian for Australia, a phenomenal individual. Um, you, him and I used to spend uh, hours driving in the car from Dubai to Abu Dhabi, you know, back in those days. And this is just around the time of the financial crisis, if you remember. So it was a pretty stressful mm. time. During those conversations, the simple relaying of stories, right, that took place, the mistakes that he might have made, the kind of things that he went through in you know, personal experiences, the regrets that he had about the time he missed with his sons, right? Mm. All those things were such powerful uh, stories. I mean, he's still a mentor of mine. He lives in Melbourne. Uh, we still, you know, catch up and like he comes on, you know, uh, workshops and, and sort of comes in for an hour and revs people up and, and heads off, right? Um, these individuals have a massive impact, right? And I think it's the stories through which I learned how to solve problems, right? It's the stories through which I learned how to make some connections, how I started to make a, and this was actually the biggest lesson I think I got from Ian, was realizing that I was sometimes confusing safety with discomfort, right? So what I was doing was that if I wanted, didn't want to try something new, I was, my brain was tricking me into thinking that I was going to be unsafe. I was just uncomfortable, mm. right? I was never unsafe. It wasn't like a lion, tiger, or bear was going to come and find me. I wasn't in the, the land of Oz trying to get you know, to, to the wizard, right? It wasn't going to happen. So I needed to actually make that distinction, remind myself. And so getting comfortable with discomfort was one of those big lessons. And also realizing that I'm most of the time, I'm pretty much safe, right? Very rarely am I unsafe. But our brain has this wonderful ability, again, going back to survival mode, it can deceive us. So I was jumping from mind to brain. And so that was probably one of the biggest lessons that I took away. Yeah. One thing, I mean, lots of things, but one thing that stood out for me as you were talking then was how we often conflate discomfort with unsafe. 
when we're uncomfortable, we think the world's about to burn down and or even awkward, you know, the moment a negative emotion comes, we want to run away from it. Mm -hmm. And as I was telling you off air, and hopefully my listeners know by now that my life motto, the single most helpful thing has been going toward pain Mm -hmm. and building our tolerance for discomfort is a really key thing. Other than exposure, how do you build your tolerance for discomfort? Mm. Meditation, breath work. Yeah, I wish I was that patient. I'm pretty sure. I mean, look, I'm I'm undiagnosed ADHD. I'm pretty sure. So my brain um, is hyper, sort of that hyperacuity, right, to different things. I just jump from mm. moment to moment. So breath work, breath work works to a point. Meditation has not really worked for me. Yeah. Um, one third of people claim that it doesn't help them at all. Yeah. Um, and so I'm unfortunately, I can see the benefits of it, yeah. um, but it doesn't necessarily work for me. So what that, what has worked for me is journaling, mm. and so writing things down and sort of questioning myself has been super powerful, and generally just talking. I, I'm a I'm a doer, and so you know that head, heart, and hands, right? So I think. And then I just do, mm. right? Um, I'm a deep empath. And so that was part of the reason of me becoming, uh, I think, a psychologist was, was to emotionally connect with people and create a safe environment for them. Um, but I have to get things done, right? And so therefore, as long as I'm talking to people, I'm listening to them, I'm observing them, I'm writing things down, that's how I get to process mm. those things. Yeah. How about you, mate? What do you do? I do somatic experiencing Mm. so whenever discomfort comes up i do a body scan Mm. i feel because an emotion has to have a body to exist in and i dissociated most of my life i'm only just learning how to feel in the last half a decade Mm. i go into like let's say it's anger i'm like okay that's in my chest it's a burning sensation then i start to describe it and label Mm. it and then i breathe every in breath is like gasoline to it i Mm. actually try and expand the feeling and every out breath is like an exhale or exhaust pipe and what i've noticed is if i can somatically experience it in my body in a regulated way without it overflowing if i just keep cycling on that it will evaporate Mm. and that's to me like being in the mental gym i'm basically like okay rep 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 bicep curl bicep curl nervous system is in the gym and then that emotion flushes and i've just got da 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 i've leveled up again mm. that to me has been the thing that has mm. gotten me to stable ground probably more than any other anything else other than supportive relationships and learning how to connect mm. but it, it, that through line pulls into relationships mm. a lot of relationships connection is going toward the hard part yeah instead of talking about the easy parts mm. uh and i want to know for you like that was kind of my poster what's your poster what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given or what's a principle you live your life by mm. I think probably one of the most important is uh, controlling the controllables, right? That is probably the most important. I think one of the things that I naturally get caught up in is becoming anxious over things that are perhaps out of my control. And so I I keep reminding myself, right, that that is there are a lot of things that are out of my control that are taking place. And when you're, 
you know, a, a co-partner of a, a Middle Eastern consulting firm, right? And you spend half your time outside. There are a lot of things that are happening that you just can't physically be there, you know, to get involved in. Um, and so you've got to kind of let go of things. It's been a big lesson for me in my life, you know, about letting go. And so that has been super helpful for me as I sort of go on my journey, right? Um, you know, to kind of become a better person. I call it better person, a, a more fulfilled or happy or whatever we want to call it, right? Even though fulfillment has a particular limit, right, of, of that periodic happiness in my sense of the word. Um, yeah, so I think those kind of things probably are the most resonate uh, with me. Mm-hmm. What is one question I asked you, haven't asked you, but you wish I did so far? You know, I still struggle with the idea that I'm not going to help enough people. Unfulfilled potential? Yeah. I feel like there are lots of things and I, you know, I sort of think to myself, if I knew what I knew today and I could go back in time with the people that I was helping 10 years ago, oh my God, I feel like I have short-changed those people from 10 years ago, right? And I'm sure 10 years from now, I'm going to look back at this moment and think, I short-changed Mitch in this conversation. <laughs> I could have given him so much more, right? And I think it's it's those things that, it, that keeps driving me to some extent, right, to keep learning and growing, and I think that's really important. Um, I, I am afraid that I... I'm going to do things that well. Things might happen to me that I'm going that are going to slow me down on that journey, right? And I have to keep reminding myself about what's in my control, right? As a result of that, but there is a fear around that, um, and maybe that's connected to some sort of sense of relevance. Am I going to feel relevant to people? Are people still going to want to spend some time with me? Mm. You know, um, I have this thing, you know, in a couple of companies, they call it gudge time. So I spend a day and people just book up their time, right? And they come and sit with me and talk to me for 45 minutes or an hour, right? About anything that's happening in their life. Mm. And companies will make this time available, right? And we can talk about anything, right? And they walk away and my goal is to make sure they are better, right? In whatever sense of the word that is, as a result of that. Can I continue? To keep doing that can i become more impactful in how i do that and i don't want to shortchange people so it forces me to also keep learning um, these conversations are uncomfortable i know i'm safe right mm. um, i have a face built for radio right so i want to make sure that i can actually true, i can i can <laughs> make sure that at least i can have a conversation where you or your listeners might have some sort of value from what i say so i've got to somehow find a way to do that there's definitely a shit ton of value out of this. I've had a couple of friends in mind as I was asking you questions this whole time being, I can hear them asking me to ask the next question almost <laughs> in my, in my brain. And, um, a lot of nodding, I think from a lot of listeners as they're going through this. And I think that's a really nice place for us to leave it. Cause we started with the chapter of what is high performance. And, and I don't know if that was planned, but really what your biggest fear is to not grow and that's the the main kpi mm. of performance that we landed on before is not outcome it is you're a genius how did you make that happen <laughs> you were directing this we just did a 180 a 360 <laughs> i don't know fuck we're going somewhere but we have gone places and um yeah it's been really insightful and validating in a way to hear that some of the things that i'm doing is in the on the right path because like any high performer, we're thoroughly insecure 
And like mm-hmm. any person who works in psychology, we're here for a reason because we want to heal our own demons. Mm-hmm. And I thank you for sharing some of your insight and, and vulnerability with us today, but most importantly for educating us on a window of uh, practice in bringing our best selves to life that not a lot of people would, ha- would have otherwise had access to. So, Gaj, I really, really appreciate it. Where do we find you if we want to follow you and listen more? Um, so I am on LinkedIn. Um, so you can find me on, on LinkedIn. I, I am on Instagram as well. Um, mm. Shadily. I don't think I uh, do a very <laughs> good job of Instagram. Um, I had a, I'm on TikTok as well, but I, I think LinkedIn and LinkedIn. Um, Instagram are probably the best. You're a LinkedIn top voice. Where do, uh, can you spell it out for us as to how to search your name? Yeah, just Gaj, the G-A-J and then Ravi Chandra. So R-A-V-I-C-H-A-N-D-R-A. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, it's been an honor, my friend. Thank you, man. Yeah, and thank you for everything you do. I'm just, I'm so impressed. I don't know how you have the time to do the things you do, but uh, it is, you'll have to give me some insights into how you schedule Spirit things. fingers, just <laughs> look over there, everyone. Just, I don't know, shit happens, uh, mostly because I'm an amazing team. Mm. Um, I think, you know, that's another nice thing to pull back on, on our interview, or sorry, call back to in our interview is, uh, I think surrounding yourself with the right people. Yeah. A lot of high performers I see, myself included, other people help us look good, mm-hmm. you know, and I certainly can't take a lot of credit for any impact that I have, which I hope I do. Um, a fucking ginormous why. Yes. And a genuine passion. I was listening to this interview with Wayne Gretzky last night, who's arguably the greatest hockey player of all time, mm. who was speaking to my favorite comedian of all time. Mm. And um, Who's that, by the way? Theo Vaughn. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Absolute legend. Mm. And I was... Uh, Wayne was telling this story where parents would come up to him and ask, how many times a week or how many hours a day should my son be training in order to become a professional hockey player? (laughs) And he basically said to the parents, if you're asking that, he's not going to become a professional hockey player. Because Wayne said, I was so obsessed with it, my parents would have to drag me away from the ice. Mm. It wasn't like, oh, I have to go practice. This is a discipline thing. Mm. He would eat, breathe, sleep hockey. And for me, I think it's like, how do you have the time? A lot of it for me is you have to drag me away from this shit. Mm. Mental health, psychology, if I have a spare moment, I want to know more. Awesome. About the brain, about behavior, about Mm. emotion. And so, and entrepreneurship happens to be a second passion of mine. So I just so happen to be in my ikigai, which I know is something that you're Mm. very passionate about as well. But... I said this on a podcast um, a little bit ago. If someone says, well, how do I start a business or how do I follow my passion? And I'm like, I mean, it's very harsh to say it in this way, but don't bother if you're asking. Because mm. if you really wanted it, you'd already be in motion. Yeah, yeah. Just fucking do. Yeah. <laughs> be be so passionate about it that someone mm. has to drag you the fuck away. Mm. That is success. You will achieve if that is who you are in a disposition, I believe. mm well said. That's an awesome way to end. Yeah. Love it. Thank Wish you all the best, man. Thank yeah. you. Looking forward to keeping connected. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, emotions have a natural tendency to dissipate unless they get uh, reinforced. And so if there's more thoughts, more stories, more intentions come along. 
So the act of how am I leaving it alone is an act of not act adding more stories, adding fuel to it. So it might not go away in two minutes, but it then begins to relax and dissipate. And so rather than being the person who has to fix it, we become the person who makes space for the heart, the mind to relax and settle away itself.